This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Neil Douglas Klotz. Neil is a world-renowned scholar in religious studies, spirituality, and psychology. He holds a PhD in religious studies and psychology from the Union Institute and taught these subjects for 10 years at Holy Names College in California. Living now in Edinburgh, Scotland, Neil Douglas Klotz directs the Edinburgh Institute for Advanced Learning. He's the author of several books, including Prayers of the Cosmos, The Hidden Gospel, The Genesis Meditations, and The Sufi Book of Life. With Sounds True, Neil has published three audio learning courses, including the new program, I Am, The Secret Teachings of the Aramaic Jesus. Neil has also written the Sounds True book, Blessings of the Cosmos, which includes a corresponding CD of 20 guided Aramaic body prayers, where he presents a collection of all new translations of Jesus' best-loved benedictions and invocations for peace, healing, and divine connection. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Neil and I spoke about how to read a text as Midrash and appreciate multiple interpretations. We also talked about body prayers and how they relate to how Jesus might himself have prayed. Neil also led us through a body prayer experience in relationship to the I am sayings of Jesus. And finally, we talked more about these I am sayings and how they were really designed as a communication to Jesus's inner circle at the end of his life. Here's my conversation with the very generous scholar, Neil Douglas Klotz. To begin with, Neil, I'm wondering if you can introduce our listeners to the language of Aramaic. Give us a sense of what part of the world this language comes from. Give us an introduction to Aramaic. Aramaic uh, really arises from originally from the area that we now call Mesopotamia, which is in the area of present-day Iraq. And uh, you could say classical Aramaic was the language of the Assyrian Empire. And in fact, today, some modern Aramaic speakers refer to Aramaic as Assyrian, uh, because there are still native speakers of Aramaic in the world today, although, as I say, they often identify themselves as Assyrians. Now, you know, the, the question is, how, how does it come to be associated with with Jesus, and that has to do with the fact that if you look at the Bible uh, and you look at world history, uh, 
ancient Hebrew peoples were subject to the domination of several empires. One of those was the Babylonian Empire, and the other was the Assyrian Empire. Really, in both cases, because they were overlapping in some ways, uh, these dominators, so to speak, spoke this Semitic language that we call Aramaic. And so, from about, well, say, at least around the 6th century before the time of Jesus, uh, the Hebrew peoples had begun to switch over from, you could say, ancient Hebrew, the Hebrew of the prophets, to this Assyrian Aramaic language. Uh, the reason this happened with it so quickly, that is within 100 years or so, is really because Assyrian, or you could say, let's say Aramaic, and ancient Hebrew are not really that different. They have the same letters in the alphabet, they have the same number of letters. Uh, they're identifiably very similar as ancient Semitic languages. So most scholars now believe that by the time of Jesus, uh, no one was really speaking the ancient Hebrew that would have been spoken, let's say, by, well, let's say Moses or by King David. And everyone was speaking this, so to speak, lingua franca, or common spoken language of the whole Middle East, which was Aramaic. Uh, The only exception to this would have been uh, those who were, you could say, a small group in the upper classes who were collaborating with the Romans and with the Roman domination of areas of the Middle East. And they would have spoken either Latin or perhaps some of Greek. But Jesus' audience was all, you could say, not these upper-class collaborating people. These were the common people of his time, uh, most of whom were not the friends of the Romans and who had been taxed and, you could say, driven off their their small holdings by the Romans in any case. So, so that's how we come to Aramaic. How is it spoken? How does it sound? Well, you know, it, if, if you listen to modern Hebrew today, the Hebrew spoken in the state of Israel, it's a little bit like ancient Hebrew, a little bit like ancient Aramaic. It has some of those ch and chach sounds and things like that. It's also a little bit like modern-day Arabic, with which it shares uh, many common root words. So, for instance, uh, you know, as the first one of the first programs I did for Sounds True was this program on the Aramaic prayer, Jesus' prayer. So the prayer, the beginning of the prayer sounds something like this. Avun nebashmaya nitka deshemoch that takes us up to the line about heaven becoming earth, really. So it's, it is it is very much, you know, you could say a, a, an ancient Middle Eastern language. It's related to Old Egyptian. It's related to ancient Hebrew. It's related to Babylonian, Ugaritic, Canaanite, um, many of the other ancient Semitic languages. And is it pretty now well accepted that this is the language that Jesus spoke? Is this commonly agreed upon? Yes, yes, and there's a but to that. Scholars generally, I would say, 99% agree that Jesus spoke Aramaic, that all of his listeners were Aramaic. However, Western biblical scholarship has gone down the route of looking at which are the oldest texts, which are the oldest, shall we say, transcriptions, or renditions of Jesus' words. And there they differ from Eastern, that is, Aramaic scholars and Aramaic church scholars, as to which are the actual, you could say, the oldest written versions. Now, as we know from looking at, you could say, how would we say, prophetic figures, 
uh, around the world in different world spiritualities, the distance between the, you could say, the, the prophet or the messenger uh, speaking something and it being written down is not a simple pass. And it's subject to, you could say, changes, alterations, certainly. Uh, it depends on what we think about ancient people's memories, which seem to have been actually very good. But still, things, different things can be written down for different purposes. And, and we find that in the ancient world in, in general. Um, the Buddha's sayings are transcribed in Pali and then retranscribed in Sanskrit or other languages, for instance. And some sayings are dated as being more, you could say, historically closer to the Buddha than others, certainly. Um, and the same is true, really, with, with the study of Christianity. Uh, so you could say while everyone agrees that Jesus spoke Aramaic, uh, scholars don't agree about what the earliest texts are. I've, I've essentially gotten or tried to get around this problem in my work by saying that, let's say, we agree that Jesus spoke Aramaic, so let's look at the sayings that are attributed to him, both in the Gospels, that is, the Gospels in the canonical Bible, as well as those Gospels that are outside the the canonical Bible, some, which are sometimes called the Gnostic Gospels. Let's look at them, you could say, in an Aramaic version if we have it. Let's look at them in an Aramaic view and see if this elucidates, if this illuminates something about Jesus' spirituality, about his way of prayer or practice. You, that really has been my main interest, rather than tracking down which is the most ancient text, because no one really knows that. That's really still subject to, you could say, theories, biblical scholarship theories, and you could say people are unearthing new theories, they're coming up with new theories about this, you could say, oral transmission to written every day, really. So, Neil, are you working with original prayers and writings in Aramaic, or are you translating what you're finding into Aramaic and then interpreting it in a new way? No, no, I'm, well, I'm, I'm working with an Aramaic text um, which Aramaic Christians use, still use today, uh, which is called Peshitta. And Peshitta is a rendering of the Gospels, the sayings of Jesus, uh, into an Aramaic that's slightly later than the one he would have spoken. But all of the key words really remain the same. So for my purposes, for the purposes of translation or interpretation of his prayer or of his sayings, uh, the fact that the pronunciation would have been slightly different isn't that much of a factor. If he said a certain saying, he had to use particular words. He didn't have a choice. And so we can, we can limit our variables in that regard. But I use what, what Aramaic Christians of all the different groups or all the different denominations use and which they consider to be their, their Bible and the most ancient and the most authentic. Whether it's the oldest or not, well, the jury is out on that. But it's, it's certainly the most Semitic, it's the most Aramaic, it's, it's the closest to what his expression would have been. So I don't have to reinvent or backward translate something. Right. And what have been some of the most significant discoveries you've made of how the original Aramaic helps us understand potentially what Jesus was really trying to say versus how people in contemporary situations might be interpreting those same verses. What are some of the observations you've made that you think are the most important? 
there's it's hard to know where to start. There there are large things that I that I've discovered that are very important, um, and which I wrote about in my second book, Hidden Gospel. For instance, that really the meaning of a, of the word good in Aramaic really means ripe. That is. R-I-P-E, at the right time, at the right place. It's essentially a planting image and one that's drawn from nature. And you could say conversely, the word for evil, that is translated as evil uh, in the gospel, is really means unripe. It's the Aramaic bisha, whereas ripe is the Aramaic tub, which is similar to the modern-day Hebrew tov. So just knowing that makes makes a huge difference when you look at words that have or that have come to have, you could say, theological implications of, well, this is good belief and this is bad belief, or this is, you could say, this is categorically, um, you know, this, as Jesus says in the Gospels, a good tree bears good fruit, an evil tree bears evil fruit. Well, I mean, he's really saying a ripe tree bears ripe fruit, an unripe tree bears unripe fruit. So, you know, look at nature if you want to know how to live life, how to come back into tune with, into with what he would call sacred unity. If you want to live life in a right way, in a ripe way, look at nature around you. It will guide you. So there are several things that I would consider to be keys that have to do with Aramaic words themselves. And then there are several small things which ended up really making a huge difference the more I looked at them. And this has to do with well, small things like we could say prepositions. Jesus primarily talks about not believing in him. He doesn't say believe in me. He says believe like me, believe as I do. It's just a matter of, of translating the preposition differently. Uh, and, you know, when it went into a Greek version, which is what the Western churches ended up using, they they chose to translate, you could say, believe like me into believe in me and that that makes a huge amount of difference so there are small things that also i found made it made a great deal of difference to the way you could say sometimes uh, some of the later interpretations of the words of jesus and and then their formulations as theology and as you could say different sorts of, of theological organizations churches and so forth I'd love to know more about some of the big and small things that you've discovered. This is really interesting to me. So maybe you could tell me some of the other key words and how it changes our understanding of what Jesus might have been trying to communicate. Well, one of the, you could say, the, the bigger picture items, which also comes comes into the in, translation of particular words, is is just that we need to to look at Aramaic and actually any ancient Semitic language, we need to let go of this uh, this division of reality into mind, body, soul, and spirit. This really comes to us from Platonic Greek philosophy, and this this division into heaven and earth, uh, you could say transcendent, imminent, mind, body, soul, spirit, and all these divisions don't apply in ancient Semitic languages. They had an entirely different worldview, a way of looking at the psychology of the self and its relationship to nature, relationship to the universe. So when we bring this into individual words, for instance, the word that Jesus uses that is often translated as spirit really means breath. Spirit is sometimes seen in some theologies as 
something that is not of this world, that is, you could say, not having anything to do with nature or with what is sometimes considered to be a fallen reality. Whereas Jesus couldn't have thought that way, and neither could the, you could say the ancient Hebrew, sort of ancient Jewish prophets, because they believe that, according to Genesis, if we read Genesis literally, the Holy One, so to speak, creates the whole universe, breathes into it, and so it's all part of this, what Matt Fox calls the original blessing. Breath, you could say my breath, the breath that we share, that we're sharing in this interview, you could say over these many miles, uh, connects with the breath or the breathing, uh, the wind, the air that's all over the planet. And this itself, you could say, returns to a larger breath. This would be their way of telling the story. And this larger breath, this breath of the whole universe, this breath that the Holy One is breathing, they would call this the Holy Breath, or Rucha de Kudsha. And this was later translated as, you probably realize, Holy Spirit, which again brings up the image of something disembodied, something you could say not of this world, uh, disconnected. So this is a, this is a big picture issue that, that percolates down through many, many Aramaic words and their literal translation, which which simply was, as I sometimes say, strained out through Greek philosophy, strained out through Greek language, uh, into a way of looking that Jesus and the, and the he- ancient Hebrew prophets could never have imagined. They couldn't, they couldn't even have imagined uh, some of the concepts that later came into Western theology. You know, I notice as we're talking, Neil, that I have this awareness that people can be very attached and convinced of their interpretation of Jesus's words and that it's very easy to offend people. Yeah. Not intentionally, but just by offering an alternative view. And I'm curious how you work with this in your teaching and writing. Yes, that's a good question, Tammy. Um, I've, since I've been working with this for over 30 years now, the What I tell people is, um, if you like the translation of the Aramaic prayer, of the Lord's Prayer that you have, the Our Father in the King James Version, stay with it. If that means something, if that's something for your heart, stay with that because that has meaning for you, that has resonance for you. And all I'm trying to show is that there, there are deeper additional meanings to some of, you could say, these more limited translations. And, and that has resonated with people. The beauty that we find, for instance, in the King James Version, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, certain sayings of the Gospel of John, all of this is, is still there. It's just that you could say the spirituality that Jesus was pointing his listeners towards, and we might say pointing us towards as well, was, was something broader. Um, it doesn't eliminate necessarily anything, any of the literal translations that were done in the past, but what it does do is perhaps broaden and deepen uh, a person's spiritual experience. And, and with that approach, I've, I've had very good, good success in speaking to many, many mainstream groups, as I say, over the last 30 years. People of many different denominations um, have benefited, and uh, you could say some of the even mainstream denominations, like one of the Methodist uh, branches even put some of my work in their handbook for ministers because they felt that it was helpful for their ministers to also look at other views deepen in their spirituality around Jesus's prayer rather than just have people be saying it as sort of words that just trip off the tongue but they're not really 
conscious and they're not really present with what they're saying. So, um, I, you know, it's it it is poss it's possible consciously or unconsciously to, to to offend people. Some people become outraged, not because, well, not necessarily because of that, because but they wondered why no one told them this some of these things all these many years ago when they felt themselves, how should we say, um, not treated very well by by the institutional church. So many of the people that end up in my seminars are those who do feel that they connect to Jesus. They may even identify themselves as Christians. Many do. But they may feel that the institutional church, in some of its forms, uh, has not treated them with respect, has not, you could say, has not treated their own spirituality with a sense of respect. I'm grateful for your very open and embracing view of helping people find what works for them, what's a gateway for them. I'm curious, though, do you think it's possible for you or anybody in their work, no matter how close you try to stay to the original language, to really know what Jesus meant? I mean, do you really know? Could anybody really know? Well, it's two questions. I, I think, no, you can't really. But this is, I would say, the beauty of the approach that I've used, which I didn't really evolve. We didn't really evolve because it's common in in looking at the the Semitic language teachings of various prophets. It's common amongst the Sufis today. It's common amongst the Jewish mystics that when you look at the words of a prophet or a mystic or a teacher in the Semitic languages, the language itself allows you to look at it in a number of different ways from a number of different viewpoints, number of different levels. Some people say, and so we can find meaning in these words then different sorts of meanings when we return to them with different life experiences. And I think that's the richness of it, that there doesn't have to be fixed as one particular translation or one particular meaning. It doesn't have to be, you could say, the be-all and the end-all or the, or the only meaning. And so that's what I've attempted to, to really do in my work is to, for instance, as I did in my very first book, Prayers of the Cosmos, translate each line of the, of the Lord's Prayer, of Jesus' Prayer, five, six different ways. So these are possibilities. No one translation is the definitive translation. But there's a richness, there's a breath there, there's a depth there in which people can hear what they need to hear and still connect, you could say, through breath, through spirit, to the person who, who said the words. Mm-hmm. I love that. So you're offering different forms of translation and saying, see which one speaks to you. Yes, it, 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 in the Jewish tradition, especially in the Kabbalistic, the mystical tradition, this is called midrash. That you you take a translation rather than do a so-called literal translation, you do maybe five, six different literal translations because the Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic allows for you could say different literal translations of the same word, and so they would say that then, well, you can look at these sayings, you can look at the wisdom in different ways from our. You could say our everyday reality, how does the saying relate to my, me in my relationships, you could say my work life, in my inner spiritual life, and you could say my psychological life, my relationship to nature, all of these are different, different you could say, arenas in which we act and which we feel and which we, which we are in life. And the ancient Semitic languages seem to, to revel in this, you could say, almost paradoxical uh, way of looking at life, that 
life was both heaven and earth. It was both a connected, you could say, shimmering wave, which would be one way of translating heaven, and it was also an individual particle. It was an individual essence that each of us came into life to offer and to, you could say, to to blossom like a seed blossoms. So there's individuality, there's diversity, but there's also unity. And this is the way the Hebrew Bible begins. If it begins in paradox, it's certainly not going to, you know, go anywhere else from there. Uh, and so I think, you know, the, the main difficulty is that when people try to boil things down to, to an only translation or an only correct belief, and in any of religious or spiritual tradition, this is where, where things tend to get a bit volatile. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful. I'm curious, in that spirit, how do you look and hear through Aramaic ears, if you will, the miracles of Jesus that are recounted in the Bible? That's a good question. Um, I've, I've looked at these. Um, I come back to really uh, the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis, who many people know for his Narnia books, but he also wrote some wonderful reflections on, on Christian spirituality. And in particular, he wrote a book on miracles, which I think is is very perceptive. And he points out that ancient peoples in many different cultures, because they looked at reality in a different way, they were more open to, you could say, the unexpected. They were more open to what we tend to call the miraculous or the supernatural, because they didn't necessarily see it as being outside the realm of possibility. And this is really true with the ancient Semitic peoples as well, because they they felt that the Holy One, you could say God, so to speak, or the or sacred unity, was, you could say, infused in all dimensions of reality, including nature. Uh, again, original sin is a later idea developed by a Christian theologian. It wasn't an idea Jesus or the Hebrew prophets could have had. But because you could say the Holy One is infused in all of our all of reality, everything we see, anything is possible at any particular time. And I suppose, you know, some scientists would say today that that created a field, that created a possibility that unusual things could actually happen. Um, th- things which today we tend to call statistical anomalies, particularly in the medical profession, where if someone has a spontaneous healing from a particular illness, Basically, that spontaneous healing is not tracked. It's just considered, oh, well, that's just unusual. You know, it's, it's not subject to what we would call Western science. Western science deals in what is predictable, whereas ancient cultures in many parts of the world, they were much more open to the unpredictable. They were much more open to what we tend to call the supernatural, although in reality, especially for the ancient Semitic peoples, nothing was really supernatural. Everything was within the realm of of the Holy One, of the One Being. There was nothing outside of that realm. So I understand that context, but still, just to ask the question again, do you think then that these are events, these miracles are events that actually happened because of that field of acceptance? Yes, I would say... You don't see them as metaphor? That's my feeling, yes. No, I, I don't. I don't see the need to take them as metaphor. I think the the various healings that we find in the Gospels. Um, there's no reason why these couldn't have happened exactly the way they're described. Um, now, do I know that's the case? No, 
But, you know, I, I, I think it's well within the realm of possibility, uh, especially in terms of what we see today, as I say, the things that, that happen which could be called miracles but simply aren't tracked that way. Mm-hmm. Now, a very interesting part of your work, Neil, here, in addition to your scholarship around the language of Aramaic, is your introduction of what you call body prayers. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how it relates to your teachings on the Aramaic Jesus. Well, that yes, that really is an essential feature of the way I teach both in my seminars and as well as the way I presented the various programs that I've done for Sounds True, I found because of the nature of this and because really my work is about spiritual experience and trying to decode, if you will, Jesus' way of prayer or meditation, his spirituality, it's important to, to give people some sense of what, what would have this, how could this have felt, what, what would it mean, um, not just in words, but what would it feel like. And so I've used what I sometimes called body prayers. I used to call them body prayers. Now I just call them meditations in some cases. Um, we don't really have a good word for this in Aramaic because Aramaic has only one word that means both prayer and what we would currently call meditation, that is silent meditation. So the same word, slotha, really means both. So I've tried to offer what I would consider to be yeah, the types of prayer, the types of meditation Jesus would have done, which involves simple chanting, simple, you could say, inner breathing with certain words, much as is done sometimes today uh, from the, in the tradition of contemplative prayer uh, or centering prayer. The only difference is I've done this from more of a Middle Eastern standpoint rather than bringing in a, a Far Eastern standpoint into it. Um, the intonation, the inner intonation of sound is very important in Middle Eastern body prayers in general or Middle Eastern way of prayer. It's much more of a, of a tradition of breath and of sound than it is of sight and of the visual. So body awareness, breathing, sound, intoning, chanting, and of course silence, these are all, you could say, tools that get us close to, I feel, Jesus' way of, of prayer and meditation. And what gives you the knowing that this is how Jesus might have prayed? Well, we find evidence for it, um, both in what he's telling people, uh, as well as in various traditions that, that arise around him. Um, in other words, that for him, prayer was not simply just saying words or just repeating certain words, but prayer was a type of contemplation, uh, a type of inner contemplation that, again, some people would identify today with meditation, some would call it centering prayer, contemplative prayer. It's, it's really part and parcel in, in his words that when he says, for instance, the, the Malkutah to Allah, the kingdom, the queendom really of the one is within you, he's also talking about it being among you. So this within and among, again, this breakdown of the dualism is there in the Aramaic language itself. And again, once we start to retranslate, or you could say, insert the word breath, wherever Jesus uses spirit, that gives us a real hint as to his way of, you could say, his way of prayer or meditation. And there are many other things like this. Uh, there are some of the later Gospels, not in the canonical Gospels, but some of the ones that weren't included, 
there are descriptions of Yeshua, of Jesus, doing some sort of circle dance uh, with his disciples. Um, in some of the, again, in some of the Gospels, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas, there are descriptions of certain types of contemplation or meditation that Jesus was sharing with his disciples. So if, if we look at all this together, which is what I've really tried to do, try to make a consistent picture, I, th I think we can get quite close to the type of, you could say, the type of body prayer or the type of meditation that he was doing. If we look before him, if we look after him, we see that it's really a, you know, a, a larger, part of a larger picture of what I would call Native Middle Eastern spirituality. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to give us an example, actually take us through a short body prayer that we could do together. Uh, we could do that, yeah, okay. Um, one of the ones I do in the new program, which is based on the Gospel of John, is focused around uh, some of the sayings of Jesus that are usually translated beginning with the words, I am. For instance, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door, and so forth. In Aramaic, the, the word that is later translated as I am is really I, I. Aramaic doesn't have a being verb. You can't actually say I am in Aramaic, nor can you really do it in ancient Hebrew as far as that goes. So really what Jesus is saying, I, I, the connection of the small self, which in Aramaic is called nafsha, that is the self that is growing, evolving, learning through life, and the connection between that and the greater self, or what in this way of looking, this story language, so to speak, would be called the only I, the only being, Allah, or the one, or the or God, if you would like to use that more theological language. So some of what we're doing in uh, in the new program is, is working with many of these sayings, but we begin with a very simple body prayer, which is simply intoning, breathing uh, gently to ourselves this word in Aramaic, Ina, Ina, which means I, I, connecting my own sense of self the way it is just in this moment with a sense of, you could say, of awe, of a sense of unity that is throughout the whole cosmos, and gradually building, strengthening that connection so that there's a more, how do we say, a, an easier pathway between the big picture of life and what I have to deal with in my everyday life. So shall we try a bit of that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so we'll try a little bit. If you would place one hand lightly over your heart, and we feel our breath rise and fall there, and just simply breathing, ina, ina, the I, I. Through these words that Yeshua, Jesus spoke, we're connecting also to his way of prayer, his way of being, and this is also support. We follow in his footsteps, so to speak. He's as though going ahead of us in the caravan of creation. So it doesn't exclude a connection with him or through him, but he's also asking us to dive more deeply into our own inner self and connect that through him to the greater sense of life, of reality, of the Holy One. Let's breathe the words first, ina, ina, feeling the breath rise and fall, and lightly touching the heart, the heartbeat there as our own inner rhythm as well.
let's intone very softly just to ourselves these words, again, using the resonance of them also to bring us into rhythm, bring us into ripeness. Inna, 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 Amen. Amen. So great. Thank you. It's interesting that you're calling these teachings and these sayings the I am sayings, but at the same time yes, you said that <laughs> that's not actually the correct translation. That's correct. This is a, a bit of a joke, yes. <laughs> it's a bit of a paradox. But people know them as the I am sayings. So we ended up using that in the title. <laughs> Really, the, the new program is really telling, re- retelling most of the story of the Gospel of John. And as I say, in short form, it's really uh, Jesus preparing his disciples for him leaving and trying to point them back to themselves as, uh, you could say, the, as, as dive more deeply into themselves as a source of guidance rather than be relying on him because he realizes he's not going to be around uh, much longer. And so uh, retold in that sense, these I am sayings really become him you could say pointing to different pathways, different meditative pathways or healing pathways that they can use after he's gone. But also connecting to him in, you could say, in breath, in vibration. Um, as he says, you know, in one of the sayings, really, from his way of looking in this tradition, and it's not really true of all traditions, but because of his way of looking, everyone travels together. No one travels separately. And he says, you know, you connect to me, what you've seen in me is me just reflecting back to you, you know, your own divine nature, but you think it's me. But we all travel together, so if it helps you to connect to me after I'm gone, to connect to me in, in breath, in vibration, I will be there for you. That, you could say that, that will be there for you. 
but keep traveling, keep going further. And and so the teachings evolve in this, I find, a very deep way, a, a way that reviews, that recapitulates all of his major teachings in the in the Lord's Prayer and in the Beatitudes, but actually in a more deep, in a deeper and in a more urgent way, we could say. Going back to this paradox that these are really the I I teachings, but that yes. here you have to call them the I am teachings in order to actually communicate. All yes. of you're writing in English, you're writing in a different language than what was the original Aramaic, and so you're dealing with this issue all the time, I imagine. Yes, you're, you're, if to some extent you're dealing with glossing certain things. And then after we say glossing, that is, okay, this is what we're talking about. For instance, in the first line of Jesus' prayer, we're talking about the line that's translated, Our Father which art in heaven. Now let's look at that in the Aramaic, and what are some of the other more expanded, deeper meetings around that? So you're always sort of you know, dealing, with, you're dealing in translation. And the way I've worked around that is to keep opening up the translation rather than to let it be limited to one particular translation, rather than to say, okay, this is the definitive translation, but keep opening it up. And, you know, I've been gratified to see that as people have used my books, they've used the recorded programs I've done from Towns True over the years, they've written to me and said, well, here I've done my own midrash, I've done, this is what I've gotten from it, here's, here's another version of this, or here's another way of looking at it. And, and that's very gratifying to me, because it means that it keeps the words, keeps the teachings living, rather than let them be, you could say, set in stone or set in uh, immutable clay, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It also seems, though, when you made that comment that there is no being verb like am in Aramaic, it made me think about how the language itself that we speak also shapes our view, our way of being. I wonder yes. what you might have to say about that in relationship Th- that's to Jesus. That's very much that's very much true. As I as I became originally when I started this work, Tammy, I originally thought, well, you know, it's just a matter of a few different words. I mean, they're important different words, as I mentioned. But then I began to say it is it is a whole cosmology. It's a whole way of looking. It's a different psychology. It's a different way of looking at time. It's a completely different way of looking at time. As I was mentioning in that meditation. Uh, the ancient Semites tended to look at time really not as a separate past, present, and future, but more as a what I sometimes now call caravan time. That is, that the past is ahead of us, pulsing ahead of us. The present is here now with us in a community with which we're traveling, and the future is coming along behind us. So almost exactly the opposite of the way you could say Western uh, philosophy looks at it, which is the, we're heading towards the future and the past is behind us and it's, it'll never affect us again. No, they looked at it almost the opposite way. We're following in the footsteps of our ancestors, and then as sometimes the Native Americans sometimes say, there are those who come along behind us or after us, and those are our children, our children's children, and we have to really be careful and pay attention to what we're leaving for them. So it's a, it's, it's a whole huge shift and this, this idea that there is no being verb is one of the biggest ones, that no one is anything. You could say, I, I am not this and not something else. Uh, the whole notion of the self slides away, that the self is something that you can hold on to, or that is, is an object, or that the soul is something that can be saved or invested or cashed in or, or, or any of these ideas. It's, um, again, this, most of these, we get these from later Greek philosophy and and the, 
the ancient Semitic mysticism is much deeper than this, and Jesus participates in this. So, yeah, it's it's it really you know it's that's why I'm still doing it, I suppose, after all these years, because I'm still finding things that are new. Now, this is curious to me what you're saying about the nature of time. How is the Aramaic language different, such that time is different? Um, it doesn't have a strict separation between past, present, and future. And by not having a being verb, um, it, it it doesn't, how would we say, objectify, this is used, it doesn't make an object into particular states. Um, if you look at the ancient Hebrew scriptures, if you look at the Bible, you know, say, look at the, what Christians call the Old Testament, you, you don't find any, any really of these types of being verbs. Um, you have everything being in motion. You don't have any verbs that mean to stand still, uh, to sit still, to be still, that is to be motionless. What's usually translated in the Hebrew scripture as be still and know that I am God uh, really is, is the saying, be silent, listen, listen and hear. So as I said, it's much more of a vibration, sound, these are vibration and sound languages, rather than looking at life from the outer appearances and then objectifying or saying, okay, well, it's, it's this and not that. You know, things are fluid, things are in motion. And we don't generally think about that in terms of the Bible or in terms of, you could say, particularly the, uh, Jesus or, or Christianity, because, as I say, it's, it was strained out through this completely other philosophy, where from one standpoint, it it's just becomes very curious. Now, you were talking about your new program on these I Am teachings, and in the program you refer to these in some contexts as, quote-unquote, secret teachings. And I'm curious, what about them was particularly secret? Well, I suppose they're not secret anymore, but... Um, <laughs> well, open but, secret now, but yeah. Well, by I suppose we use the word secret. I, I We went back and forth about this, but secret in the sense that these were teachings really for his close circle. Um, so there were some things that he gave, you could say, to his inner circle, and that he wanted them to know before he left. Um, and the, it's not exactly clear if they always understood him either, because he had to keep coming back to various themes again and again. But I would say it's, you could say, more of an inner circle teaching rather than what he was what he was expressing outwardly to, to everyone else. And, you know, it's, it's, one often finds that with teachers as they're about to leave, that tries to leave something, leave some transmission, so to speak, and tries to pass that on to a few people, if, you know, one, two, maybe a half a dozen, if, if he or she is lucky. And what were some of the central themes of this inner circle teaching? Some of the central themes are... First, that he, he wanted really his, his closer circle, his, his close disciples, his close students, to, as he says in the Gospel of John very clearly, even it says it in the King James, he wanted them to do the things that he has done and greater than these. And the way that they would do that is not by, so to speak, idolizing him or putting him on a pedestal, but in trying to look to what he, towards where he's pointing them, uh, look towards their own connection, ina, ina, through him to sacred unity. And there were various ways that he was pointing out that this could be done. When we connect to our inner self 
in a deeper way and realize, okay, it's changing, moving within this greater caravan of life when we connect to the, to the bigger picture. That is a doorway that allows us to move more fluidly between different avenues, different uh, aspects of ourself. It's also a sense of guidance or direction, which was the saying that was translated later as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Aramaic, this really looks something like, um, if you connect ina ina, this will show you the path. It will show you the sense of right direction. That is, when you come to a crossroads, that's the so-called truth, or shrara in Aramaic. And also, it's the life. But in this case, it means life energy. It's chai in Aramaic. So he says this connection, this deeper connection through simple presence, eye to eye, is the path, it's the sense of direction, and also it's the energy to travel. And this just makes perfect sense to me. I mean, this is something I, you know, I use every day, actually. You come back to the breath, come back to presence, and, okay, there's the path. Okay, with breath, with sense of connection, I can decide you know, what I need to do, not to do, and also gives me some life energy to keep traveling. So I can hear in this, Neil, your excitement and the discovery that you've had, the experience of discovery in finding some of these original words and sayings and how meaningful they are. I'm curious if you've ever come upon some of the original Aramaic and just been like, oh my God, I don't get this at all. Like, I just don't get it. This doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's happened many times, Tammy, actually. <laughs> because, you know, I started out, this is 30 years ago, well, actually, uh, yeah, started off 30 years ago just with the, with the prayer, just with Jesus' prayer. And I thought, well, that's enough. The rest I can't deal with. <laughs> it's too complex. Uh, but the more I started to do little bits, little bits, little bits, pieces of the puzzle started to fill in, more and more started to make sense. But there's still some things I haven't worked on, and uh, I don't know if I ever will. Some people want me to do an entire retranslation uh, of the New Testament, but I'm probably not going to do that. Um, you know, there's, even just getting all the sayings of Jesus done would be, would be quite a job for one person's life, if you do it in the way that I've done it, which is you know, unpacking each thing to look at some of the possible multiple layers or some other ways that people can get into it. As I say, there's no sense of being definitive. I'm just you know, adding my bit into what people have done before me. Hopefully someone will, will pick it up after I'm gone as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Neil, you know, the conversation has been very generous and open, and, and I really appreciate that. But I'm curious, before I let you go here, if you feel there are any just major misunderstandings or misconceptions about Jesus because of bad translation work, that you <laughs> want to be clear that you get an opportunity here from your knowledge I of the see. Aramaic to set the record straight. You know, because of this different nature of time in Aramaic, um, the whole notion of a judgment day is very problematic. Um, it's The more I've looked at it, it's inconceivable to me that Jesus could have imagined a judgment day the way people currently talk about it, um, or that any of the Hebrew prophets could have imagined it either. Um, or, and, and I even ex- extended that even into Islam, because some branches of Islam believe in a certain type of apocalyptic judgment day. And Muhammad couldn't have known anything about it either, uh, again, simply because the language wouldn't have allowed them to do it. Their idea of judgment was of discrimination, of decision, 
in the moment, in connection, as we were working with Ina Ina, when I connect with the Holy One through whatever prayer or through whatever meditation, then I have the ability to decide what is important in my life at this moment and what is not important. I have to discriminate. I have to discriminate on what is ripe and what is unripe, what's ripe for me now, and you could say what's unripe for me. And so do our so does our society, so does our culture it has to discriminate uh, and decide, okay, what what maybe formerly we thought was good to do as a culture, maybe now it's no longer ripe. So it's not saying this is all relative, but this is the actual judgment day. The judgment day, as many mystics have said, is really here and now. Each moment, each breath can be a judgment day. So I would say that's, you know, in, as a parting as a parting bit, that's what I would leave you with. Okay, and just two final things. I'm not letting you go quite yet. The first one is I'm curious of the teachings of Jesus that you've encountered through your research, study, and practice. What is currently the hardest one for you to live into? Ah, well, the hardest one for me to live into is, you know, Jesus, uh, uh, just I would say the difference in lifestyle. When I go on personal retreat and when I go into nature, then I can really feel much closer to, you could say, this this person, Yeshua, Jesus. Um, but you know, I live a life as as many people do. I have, a, I have, a, I have a wife. I have a part, You know, I have a wife. I have, you know, I have I have work. I do. I'm I'm living in the world. I'm not living as, you know, as as a wandering ascetic. Although I do travel a lot. So you know that it, it's it's he had a different mission in life, so to speak. That is, Jesus did. He came, he left very powerful sayings. I believe he left very powerful practices. But then he, you know, he left. Uh, however, we believe he may have left, but he left by the time he was 30-something. You know, I'm, you know, I just pushed past 60. So it's, it's a different sort of trajectory of my life path, really. And um, for that, I have to look to other prophets and messengers, you know, to see, you know, what, you know, how can I follow in their footsteps in in a good way as well as live my own life? And then finally, Neil, I wonder if you could leave us with a few phrases, paragraph of Aramaic and the translation, something that's particularly meaningful to you, just as a closing. Ah, okay. I'll leave you with this. This is from the Gospel of John. Um... And this is one of the Jesus's, at least according to Gospel of John, one of Jesus's final sayings to his his students, his small group. And he says, "Det habun hadlechad, ikana deena ahebtakun. Det habun hadlechad, ikana deena ahebtakun." This is translated beautifully in the King James: "Love one another as I have loved you." And the Aramaic gives this additional dimension that this aheb is the word for love in this case in Aramaic, is like love that grows from a small seed. It grows, you could say, in the darkness, unknown first, and then slowly blossoms. And this, I feel, is, is how we have to look at, look at life, look at relationship these days. We, we have to respect, tolerate differences. This is a type of ahab love, according to Yeshua. just begins with sort of mutual respect. And then perhaps gradually we can learn to live better with each other and respect these differences 
more and more. And this is, I think, the most problematic thing in our culture today with globalization. Um, we've globalized our differences as well as our similarities. And, you know, we know a lot more about other people's differences as well as uh, about, you could say, their deeper similarities to us in a certain way. So I think this is still a, a koan, if I can borrow a term from Buddha, Zen Buddhism, it's still a koan for not just Christians, but anyone who wants to participate in Jesus' spirituality. Det habun chad lachad, ikana de'ena aheb takun. How can we love our inner self? How can we love our, you could say, our, our evolving self? How can we love those around us? How can we respect, live together, and keep moving together? Wonderful. I've been speaking with Neil Douglas Klotz. He's created a new audio learning series with Sounds True called I Am, The Secret Teachings of the Aramaic Jesus. He's also the creator of two other audio learning sets with Sounds True, very complete courses, one on the healing breath, body-based meditations on the Aramaic Beatitudes, as well as a program called Original Prayer, Teachings and Meditations on the Aramaic Words of Jesus. Neil Douglas Klotz has also published with Sounds True a book called Blessings of the Cosmos, a unique collection of Jesus's benedictions and invocations for peace and healing. Neil, thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Tammy. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.